Holocaust is exploited mercilessly by the Zionist movement. The Zionists have tied the Holocaust very closely to the narrative that Israel is a refuge, is a defense, is an answer to anti-Semitism. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. This is the Electronic Intifada podcast. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. And I'm Asa Winstanley. Well, we're here today with Tony Greenstein, who will be familiar to many of our listeners and viewers. Um, But for those of you who are not, Tony Greenstein is a veteran of the Palestine Solidarity Movement in the UK. He's an activist and a blogger. He's an iconoclastic and uncompromising Jewish anti-Zionist. His blog for many years, to me, has been really an invaluable source. I mean, I've relied on it for a lot of my journalism um and i i regard it as an essential source for anyone in the palestine solidarity movement um tony pulls no punches um and he always speaks the truth that the unvarnished truth shall we say as he sees it um and i always learn something new from tony's blogs um and uh so and uh he's now he's the author of a new book called Zionism during the Holocaust, which will be out to buy soon. Um, I've got my copy of it here, and which uh, viewers on the YouTube will be able to see. Um, and I, I think I'm going to be reviewing it at some point for for EI. Um, but I, I think for now, I can say that it's it's an essential read, and um, that I mean, I learned a lot from it. So we're going to sort of go through some of it in this episode of the podcast um it's so as the title suggests it's on a topic that is often to many majorly controversial which is the issue of the zionist movement's historical collaboration with the far right even including nazi germany so with that preamble tony welcome to the show thank you thank you asa and nora thanks for being so tell us. us about Tell us about your book and um, what inspired you to write it. Okay, thanks. Well, the first book was about Zionist collaboration with the Nazis was nearly 40 years ago by Lenny Brenner. And there's been nothing since. There's been a lot of research and a lot of journal articles and books and so on. But there's been nothing from an anti-Zionist perspective. Uh, And I felt it was necessary to do so. Because as we can see today, the Holocaust is exploited mercilessly by the Zionist movement. I mean, the very false definition of anti-Semitism, the IHRA, is produced or used by a group that calls itself the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. So the Zionists have tied the Holocaust very closely to the narrative that Israel is a refuge, is a defense, is an answer to anti-Semitism. And I I thought it's extremely important to actually look at what happened during the Holocaust. What was a Zionist record then? Because you would assume from what you, from the way they use it now, that the Zionists were to the forefront of trying to save Jews, trying to support Jews in Nazi-occupied Europe, to try to open the avenues of rescue. so anyone reading the book, I think, will be quite amazed by the fact that the Zionists during the war 
saw the Holocaust as a complete distraction from their own efforts, which were to build the Jewish state. In, of course, in between 1941 and 1945, there was no Jewish state, but it was in the offing. It, that was their main goal. Uh, and they saw it as their only goal. Uh, I mean, they held the Biltmore Conference uh, in 1942, April 1942, when the Holocaust was just getting going uh, with the extermination camps. Of course, it began nearly a year previous to that with Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of Russia, when the killing squads, the Ansatz group, and uh, went in the wake of the German army mopping up Jews in Galicia and the Ukraine, uh, white Russia and so on. But the Zionists have, <laughs> during that time, as I say, not only were not bothered about the Holocaust, they actively tried to stop anyone who wanted to provide a refuge from doing so. And that, that was the amazing thing. They had a, a weird and incredible logic. But it was their logic. And the Zionist logic was that where there are Jews, there is anti-Semitism. Jews cause anti-Semitism because they are living in the, the countries of other people. In the words of A.B. Yehoshua, they are guests in other people's hotels. And of course, they've outstayed their welcome. So simply transplanting Jews from Nazi-occupied Europe to America or Britain would not solve the problem. It would simply recreate anti-Semitism in another place. So you had to be cruel to be kind and say the only place of settlement was Palestine. And that is why they actively, and it, it, this is on, a rec on record, uh, I mean, Celia Brzezinski uh, in 1943, uh, who was the president of the Jewish Board of Deputies, he actively sabotaged the rescue efforts of the chair of the chief rabbi's rescue committee, Rabbi uh, Schoenfield, uh, a very distinguished rabbi uh, uh, and doctor. Uh, he, he actively sabotaged his rescue attempts. He got a signatory, a petition from 40, 50 parliamentarians, bishops, and various other worthies, peers, and so on, saying, open the doors. Because in 1942, with the Allied Declaration, 17th of December, that there was a Holocaust, because people didn't realize at first that the Nazis weren't just killing Jews in pogroms, but were actually systematically exterminating them. There was a mass wave of a revulsion, and 80% of British people said, let them in, regardless. Uh, the British government, of course, did not agree, and that was a Labour uh, coalition government as well, under right. Herbert Morrison, the Home Secretary. Schoenfield uh, was appointed by the Chief Rabbi, Dr Hertz, uh, and Dr Solomon Schoenfield was his name, uh, and he had all these rescue schemes uh, which he wanted to put into operation. And the Board of Deputies under Celia Brzezinski, who'd become president in 1940. Previously, it was in the hands of the bourgeois anti-Zionists. But once he got his hands on uh, on the board and the Zionists did, they set their face against any rescue uh, at all whatsoever. But this is a kind of history uh, which is uh, unknown. But I mean, I quoted uh, it, the article uh, in the Jewish Chronicle, a letter in the Jewish Chronicle from Marcus Retter, who was his close assistant 
who goes through it. And there was a correspondence in the Jewish Chronicle and the historian of the British Jewish community today, Dr. Jeffrey Alderman, wrote a letter in response to the daughter of Selig Brzezinski saying, yes, everything that Mark Schretter says is correct. Uh, and you don't have to believe him. You can go back to the correspondence columns of the Jewish Chronicle where Brudetsky defends what he did because he said this was not the proper way to do it. You have to go through the official channels. So he was more concerned about procedure and protocol when people were literally 10,000 a day were burning uh, in Auschwitz. And that, that is, uh, if you like, an illustration of the depths of depravity of the Zionist movement. Uh, and it has to be said, I mean, the boards were anti-Zionists. I mean, were not brilliant by any means when they read the board of deputies. Uh, have no doubt about that. But they were responsible for the Kinder transport in 1938-39, which rescued 10,000 German Jewish children and brought them to England. And maybe I can quote uh, from my book uh, because they are quite relevant. Uh, it's from David Ben-Gurion who became the first prime minister of Israel, the longest serving prime minister until Netanyahu. And he was then chair of the Jewish agency, which was a quasi government in waiting. And he said uh, because, uh, about this plan to bring 10,000 Jewish children over, he said, if I knew that it would be possible to save all the children in Germany by bringing them over to England, and only half of them by transporting them to Eretz Yisrael, then I would opt for the second alternative. But we must weigh not only the life of these children, but also the history of the people of Israel. Uh, and, and he wasn't, of course, the only person uh, who said that. I mean, Chaim Weizmann uh, was equally blunt. Uh, if I can find uh, the quote, uh, and I probably won't. Y yes, it was from Malcolm McDonald. He was the colonial secretary at the time, and he recalled and this is in Nicholas Bethel's book for anyone who's interested in the source, but it, it's all in the book. He said, I remember at the time that Weizmann's attitude shocked me. He insisted on the children going to Palestine. As far as he was concerned, it was Palestine or nowhere. And when MacDonald refused to guarantee the children would go to Palestine, Weizmann told him that we shall fight you. And when I say fight, I mean fight. So, I mean, that was the Zionist attitude during the war. Uh, indeed, the first proposal to set up Yad Vashem, which is Israel's Holocaust Propaganda Museum, came in 1943 or 44 from Moshe Shenhavi. Was that, yeah, it was in 19, I think it was 1943. Uh, when most of the Jews were still alive, he was proposing to set up a memorial to those who were wow. still alive. I mean, they were calculating after the war how best they could make use of those who were going to die. And that is, I say, uh, the utter depravity of it. So Chaim Weizmann, of course, uh, Chaim Weizmann, just uh, just for our listeners' clarification, uh, was the first president of That's uh, right, the Israeli yeah. state. Right. And a very long-standing president of the World Zionist Organization right. before that. A major, major figure in Zionist history. So, I mean, that was their attitude. So today, of course... Uh, you won't get an inkling of that. And anyone who speaks out about it will be damned. Uh, I mean, mm. not just me, Ben Hecht, who was a revisionist Zionist, was attacked as a, uh, I mean, literally, I mean, uh, he was demonised. And he was a right-wing Zionist. 
but he wrote about uh, a book called Perfidy in 1961-62 about the Kastner trial, which I can go into later in Israel, the trial of a collaborator, a major, major collaborator. Yeah, I want to get into that a bit later, Kastner. Yeah. Um, I and mean, Hannah I... Arendt was another. I mean, she was probably the greatest political philosopher of the last century, uh, herself a refugee from Nazi Germany. She wrote a book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, which touched on some of these themes because she saw she saw through the Eichmann trial, which was a show trial. Because everyone knew Eichmann was guilty, of course. I mean, uh, he deserved whatever happened to him. But uh, the trial itself, uh, as she said, exonerated Hitler and Himmler because the trial judges or the appeal court in Israel found that uh, Eichmann was solely responsible for what he had done. Not Hitler, Eichmann. You know, I mean, we can say what we want about Eichmann, but he was acting uh, on orders from Hitler, clearly. But she wrote a book which touched on some of these issues, the very issues the Eichmann trial had been designed to avoid, which was the Kastner trial before it. Uh, and she was, you know, persona non grata. I mean, she was accused of being a Holocaust denier, a Nazi, and everything else. So. I don't expect it's going to be received with welcome by the Jewish Chronicle. <laughs> I think that's a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. In fact, there's already been more, one review by Jenny Fraser, who wrote oh, yeah. an article in, I think, the Jewish News. Jewish News, yeah. the book as anti-Semitic. She hasn't read a word of it, but, but she knows it's anti-Semitic. So <laughs> Amazing. There you Amazing. Go. I love it when people review books they have not read. It's... Um very telling um, i was reading the final few chapters of your book today tony and in the conclusions you write quote the zionist movement consciously ignored the holocaust while it was occurring even to the point of denying or questioning whether it was happening yeah. throughout the war achieving jewish statehood was the overriding priority now this is a really significant conclusion that you've reached. It's, it's a really big claim, which some of our listeners may find quite shocking. Could you lay out some of the, I mean, obviously you don't have time to go through the entire book, but could you lay out some of the evidence that you put forward for this in your book? Well, uh, after the Allied declaration, in, in, on the 23rd of November, the Jewish agency, which had been in possession of information about the Holocaust for three months, uh, that is from August. This is the most intense period of the Holocaust. Probably one and a half million Jews died in that those three months alone in 1942. They simply sat on the news of it. I mean, Stephen Weiss, who was the uh, leader of American jury, boasted openly that uh, I have been keeping it under wraps and not publicising it. It was at the request of the State Department, but regardless, the fact is, they simply kept quiet about it until they were forced to do that because the third load of exchange prisoners, that is prisoners who had been exchanged with Nazi Germany, Jews, arrived in Palestine. They described what was happening. They could no longer keep quiet about it. So they issued a statement on the 23rd of November, 1942. The Allies followed suit very, suit very quickly afterwards on the 17th of December, 1942, saying that, yes, it wasn't just random killings, it wasn't large-scale pogroms, it was a systematic extermination of the Jewish people of Europe, uh, and that was significant. But yet, even after that, they, the Zionists 
then simply reprinted uh, Nazi propaganda in Ostrand, a Nazi paper, saying there were 55 ghettos still in Poland, but 2 million Jews were still alive out of the 3.3 million. And this was, well, it was just a total lie. I mean, there's barely any uh, Jews left by the end of 1942. Poland had been combed thoroughly. There were, I think, uh, two or three uh, ghettos, the Warsaw Ghetto, but most of its inhabitants had already been transported to Treblinka. There was lots, which was the second largest uh, city, uh, second largest ghetto in, in Europe. And there were, there were one or two fragments dotted around, but uh, at least two and a half million, I would say, of Poland's jury had been exterminated by then. So the Zionists simply swallowed hook, line and sinker. The claim that there were 55 or 53, the number varies, uh, Jewish ghettos left in Poland. It was simply not true, yet they repeated it. Uh, and and throughout, I mean, they, they dismissed it. Uh, they, they continued to cast doubt the newspapers. So, I mean, a newspaper would print reports, and then would have an editorial saying, these figures can't be trusted, they may well be an exaggeration, we shouldn't overemphasize, and so on. But they also said, to be quite honest, I mean, people like Nathan Schwab, who was the Hechavut's representative in Geneva, were quite open. He said, well, the Allies have their casualties in the war and we have ours. And that's how they saw them. They were just the Jewish casualties in the battle to get a Jewish state. So if you accept their logic, and the logic of Zionism is that a Jewish state was everything. That, that was the main and sole goal. And of course, there will be casualties along the way. Uh, and you have to see Zionism as a racial project to perpetuate the Jewish people. You can't understand it any other way. It wasn't a refuge, uh, create a refuge for Jews or anything else. It was a perpetuation of the Jewish nation race. And that's why today, I mean, I've given examples in my book, uh, assimilation is compared to the Holocaust. Why? Because if you assimilate, if you marry out, you're a Jew to a non-Jew and disappear. That's the same as disappearing in the gas chamber. That's the logic. And in fact, the Harvard has a the slogan: "Assimilation is a Jewish Holocaust," or "Intermarriage is a Jewish Holocaust." Uh, so they are quite open about it. Uh, and I give uh, quite a number of examples in it in the book. If you look up assimilation, then uh, you will find me. If, if you want, I. I can quote to you, uh, let me just do a search. Uh, if I can. I mean, the the anti-assimilation um, and, uh, you know, interracial marriage, uh, it's it's part of the law in, in Israel. Um, yes, that's right. I mean, uh, they've codified it. Yes, yes. In order to grow, uh, you know, a Jewish Zionist population. Yeah, and Arthur Rupin, I mean, he wrote in his book, The Jews' War of Survival, that the Nazi race laws, the Nuremberg laws, were, and I quote, returning to Judaism, those Jews who had been lost to it because of increased assimilation in Germany. So, I mean, uh, even while it was happening, uh, I mean, the Zionists were the only ones to welcome the Nuremberg laws because they actually, as he, Rupin put it, they were returning Jews even what was called Christian Jews, this phenomena, a Jew who uh, converted to Christianity under Nazi race laws was still Jewish. 
the Zionists were quite happy about that. You know, they were returning the sinners to the fold, as it were. So this is the logic. I mean, the Zionists accepted the Nazi definition of Jews as a race, and uh, an alien race, of course. Mm. So uh, it, it's all fitted together. But of course, today, they don't mention these things for obvious reasons. Yeah, you'll get, you're starting to get into more now about the kind of ideological foundations of Zionism and the uh, the kind of, I suppose, racialized reasons for the Zionist leadership's support for the Nazis in the in the 1930s. Um, and I, I think this is a real strength of your book is that you really lay out the whole history of it. Um, you mentioned earlier Lenny Brenner's book, Zionism in the Age of Dictators, mm, um, yeah. from um, 1983, which I've also read. And um, it's, I mean, it's it's a, it's a it's a much shorter book than yours. Yeah. And it's, um, it's also, I mean, obviously, you know, it's, um, it's, I mean, it's still very good, I think, but it's, it's, um, it's kind of out of date in certain respects now. Um, could you um, talk a little bit more about the ideological foundations of Zionism and explain a little bit more about Arthur Rupin, who you've already mentioned, um, and the reasons why, um, which the, the foundations of Zionism, which led to the it, which ended up in the Zionist movement in Germany in the 1930s offering their support to Adolf Hitler. Okay, I mean, I think we have to be careful that we... I wouldn't necessarily say they offered their support to Adolf Hitler, so much as the Zionist movement saw... I mean, mo most Jews, when Hitler came to power in January 30th, 1933, were horror-stricken. Right? You know, I mean, they could see that this wasn't simply just another anti-Semitic regime, which of which there were quite a few in Eastern Europe. Uh, but this was something totally different. It was a fascist regime which had anti-Semitism at the core of its policies. Uh, and anyone could see that this posed a serious threat to the survival of the German Jewish community. I mean, it, it, it was pretty obvious. So the boycott took off initially. It was spontaneous. People just didn't buy German goods. You know, in 1995, 96% of the Jewish community in Britain supported the boycott. When I give the example of a a shop in the East End, uh, a toy shop which was selling uh, German goods, and when someone found out, there were thousands crowding around it, and they had to bring the mounted police in to clear them. You know, they were outraged. He was forced to sell, to return the goods to Germany. Uh, so I mean, but the boy, the board of deputies, of course, uh, opposed the boycott along with the Zionists. Uh, the Zionists were opposed from the very start, well before Havara even, uh, to the boycott. So, I mean, the Zionist, Zionism came about, it was a reaction to anti-Semitism. I think we can all agree on that, excluding, of course, Christian Zionism, which came well before Jewish Zionism, incidentally. But Zionism was a different reaction from most Jewish reactions to anti-Semitism. I mean, bourgeois... Uh, Bourgeois Jews would, would think that you could reform the country and change the laws and change the attitudes of people. So they propagandized. Socialist Jews and communist Jews believed 
you had to overthrow the existing system, etc. But the Zionists were unique because they basically accepted the framework of the terms of debate of the anti-Semites. They said the anti-Semites have a case. I mean, uh, let me give you uh, Jacob Klatskin, I mean, uh, uh, who was the editor of their paper, Develt, uh, and he said, if we don't admit the rightfulness of anti-Semitism, we deny the rightfulness of our own nationalism. Instead of establishing societies for defense against the anti-Semites who want to reduce our rights, we should establish societies for defense against our friends who desire to defend our rights. So, I mean, he, he made it quite clear that, I mean, they welcomed anti-Semitism and they, they agreed that the Jews, because they were a nation that had lost its way, that was living in other nations' countries, had developed a social characteristic. If you look at this book, uh, you see it. This was the first pamphlet by Theodore Herzl. Sorry, it's upside down, I know. Uh, the Jewish State. And on page, uh, what is it, 26, he said, uh, the cause of anti-Semitism, its immediate cause, is our excessive production of mediocre intellects who cannot find an outlet downwards or upwards. That is to say, no wholesome outlet in either direction. When we sink, we become a revolutionary proletariat, the subordinate officers of all revolutionary parties. And at the same time, when we rise, there rises also the terrible power of purse, of our purse. So, I mean, there you have it. I mean, he accepted all the caricatures. Jews were either too rich or they were revolutionary and subversive. So what was the answer? It was basically to form a Jewish state where Jews would congregate, but Jews, had no place in the diaspora, and they called it the accursed Galut, uh, Galut being exile. Uh, Jews were in exile. They had no life of their own, really. Jewish history really begins in Palestine. There was a void of 2,000 years, according to Ben-Gurion. Now, Arthur Rupin was, uh, you mentioned, was, I would say, the most important person, maybe after Ben-Gurion, in the Yeshuv, in the Jewish the Zionist community, in Palestine. He went there in about 1907, and from then on, he became director of the Palestine office. And he was, he directed the funds that they got from abroad. And he was really the founder of the kibbutz, or the kibbutzar, as it was, then the smaller version. Not because he was a socialist, I mean, he was a Rabin reactionary. I mean, he, he was a German nationalist and condemned Dreyfus. Uh, and he only became a Zionist, really, because the anti-Semites rejected him being a German nationalist because he was Jewish. So he, he decided he had to become a, Jew, uh, a Jewish nationalist instead. But he was a rabid, a complete racist. And he believed that the Jews of Europe were not Semitic. They, they, he didn't believe they had any Semitic blood in them. Uh, that was the Arab Jews who were a dyschenic element. Uh, they were a foreign element. And what he did was he brought over Yemenite Jews to Palestine to do the hard work for the kibbutzim. I mean, don't believe they actually uh, made the desert bloom or any of that. Uh, and in the words of Etan Bloom, who has written a very interesting PhD thesis for Tel Aviv University, uh, he, he was guilty of pathological stereotyping. Because they came from the Arab countries, they had much lower wages than anyone else. They had barely had enough food and they were deprived of medical attention, and 50% of them died as a result in Palestine. Uh, he, and then, you know, he, in 1920-21, uh, 
the Zionist organization under Weizmann and him rejected the ability, the applications of Ukrainian Jews who were dying in the pogroms to come to Palestine because they were the wrong sort of Jew, you see. They were weak, they were feeble, they were refugees. They, they didn't have the pioneering spirit. Uh, they had the wrong social economic makeup. You know, they weren't farmers, they were maybe petty traders and what have you. So this idea that Zionism sought to create Israel as a refuge, I mean, is all wrong. It never has been the case. They won't go into disaster spots, use them to pluck out Jews uh, and then put them in the West Bank to settle the territories, of course. It's not because of uh, any concern for them as individuals or Jews, for that matter. But Rupin, I mean, guided the settlement policy. I mean, he's called the father of land settlement in Palestine. He was in charge, I mean, with the JNF, of course, they they, they were subordinate. Uh, they carried out the uh, the buying up of land and the settlement and so on. But Rupin was an overall charge of it. Uh, and when Chaim Alosarov was assassinated in 1933, almost certainly by the revisionist Zionist, the Ear Gun, uh, because he had been leading the negotiations for Havarah, the trading agreement the Zionist instituted with Nazi Germany, Rupin took over. And Ethan Bloom speculates that when he went to Jena, uh, the University of Jena, he met Professor Hans Gunther. Uh, Hans Gunther was the professor, the chair of racial anthropology. He was described by uh, Gabriel Pittsburgh, who I, I mentioned earlier, uh, as the, the mentor of Himmler. He, he outlined the racial concepts and ideas, uh, and he was put into the chair by Robert Frick, who was, I think, later hanged at Nuremberg. He, he was the first Nazi state minister in Germany. He was put into that chair by the Nazi party uh, in that state. Uh, and he and Rupin spent a congenial afternoon discussing race theory. And, and uh, Rupin said of... Uh, Gunter, that his book had a, was a treasure chest of ideas, you know, so that they really did agree. And in his diaries, he says uh, this was a pleasant conversation. Now, in two of the diaries, I, I think it's in the Hebrew and in the English, this meeting does not appear. I mean, Spain, who was also the biographer of uh, Herzl. But in Germany, it does. So that's how we know that this meeting took place. Uh, and of course, I mean, what he wrote in his diary, we can take it to be fairly accurate when he describes it as a pleasant conversation. Uh, and Bloom speculates that this was kind of buttering up the Nazis to agree to the transfer agreement, because the transfer agreement was not a Nazi idea, it was a Zionist idea. Uh, and we have to bear that in mind. And of course, all the nonsense about it being aimed to get Jews out of Germany, again, is a whole load of tripe. I mean, the, you can read my book. Uh, the Zionist movement lobbied the Nazis, the Gestapo, not to allow Jews to go out of Germany anywhere but Palestine. And Palestine could only admit 15,000 at maximum a year. So uh, what was that mean? What did that mean? They would stay in Germany and perish. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about that on that note then. Let's talk about the transfer agreement, the Havar agreement. Um, could you maybe start by explaining what when when hitler first came to power in germany what the reaction of the zionist leadership was oh well uh, the reaction of the zionist movement was uh in germany 
in Germany. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, see if I can find uh, a few quotes for you. Uh, I mean, Francis Nicosia, who's the professor of Holocaust studies at Vermont University, is the Raoul Hilberg professor. I mean, he's pro-Zionist. He's uh, he's not an anti-Zionist, but he's written two books which give a lot of information. And he writes, so positive was the Zionist assessment of the situation that as early as April 1933, the Zionist Federation of Germany announced its determination to take advantage of the crisis to win over the traditionally assimilationist German jury to Zionism. Bear in mind, in Germany in 1933, Zionism was a fringe movement. Maybe one in fifty Jews supported right. it. You know, this is what's thought... often missing in our modern day discussions about yeah. this topic, is that even I mean, you mentioned in your book as well that it wasn't until uh, I believe nineteen forty that in Britain, for example, the Board of Deputies of British Jews mm. became a Zionist organization. That's right. I mean, people often get it the wrong way around. They see the Israel lobby as the source of all problems. Now. I mean, none of us have much affection for the Zionist lobby in this country or in America. But I think we need to understand that they derive their power from the non-Jewish bourgeoisie, not the other way around. Uh, and there's a very perceptive comment in Stuart Cohen's book on British Jewry and Zionism, where he said, because the British bourgeoisie, British Jewish bourgeoisie rather, was hostile to Zionism for 20, 30 years. I mean, because it, they felt it undermined all their hard-won rights of Jewish emancipation and so on. Here they've been saying we're good British people, we're patriotic and all the rest of it. And here were the Zionists saying, no, 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 we're, we're a nation apart. We don't really, we're not really British. So they reacted with horror to this. Uh, and it was only with reluctance when they saw that to be Zionist was to be patriotic. And when the non-Jewish bourgeoisie had adopted Zionism as its firm and fixed policy because it saw a Jewish state eventually in Palestine as being useful for British interests. Uh, right. You know, the colonization next to the Suez Canal. It was only then that the Jewish, if you like, bourgeoisie came over to Zionism, but it did it pretty late in the day, yeah. uh, even in 1917. I mean, they saw it as a film venture, so they gave it that kind of support, but they didn't go along with the ideology at all, or that British Jews didn't belong there. I mean, they were quite happy for Eastern European Jews to go to Palestine rather than Britain. I mean, that that is true, but they weren't Zionists in any formal sense. They didn't adopt the ideology. So yes, it was very late. So I mean, so Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany in 1933, and at that time, as you said, Zionism is a fringe movement among. German yeah, Jews yeah. and among Jews in the world. So what, yeah, what is their I response? Mean, I mean, Bill Katznelson, who is the deputy really to Ben-Gurion, uh, editor of Davar, who, which is the main history drip paper, saw the rise of Hitler as, quote, an opportunity to build and flourish like none we have ever had or ever will have. Ben-Gurion <laughs> said that the Nazis' victory would become a fertile force for Zionism. The future first in, prime minister of Israel. That's right, yes. And, uh, and you can find that in Tom Sego's book, The Seventh Million. Uh, and Rabbi Joachim Prince, who's one of the main leaders 
of the German Zionist Federation, later to become, I think, deputy president of the World Jewish Congress, uh, said it was morally disturbing to be considered as the favorite children of the Nazi government, particularly when it dissolved the anti-Zionist youth groups and seems in other ways to prefer the Zionists. The Nazis asked for a more Zionist behavior. Of course, hinting at that got Ken Livingston thrown out of the Labour Party. But it's absolutely <laughs> true. But he only he only touched on it. Uh, I mean, it's here in black and white, and, and that quote is well from his own book in uh, his his own article. So I mean, there is absolutely no doubt. And if you read Zionist historians, they don't disagree with this at all. I mean, they. But of course, that's buried away in the footnotes of learned journals. For most people, they will believe that a Jewish state and the Jews are synonymous, and that's what we have to tackle. So, going back to Chaim Weizmann for for a moment, um, you noted in your book that that he emphasized that a Jewish Palestine quote would be a safeguard to England, in particular in respect to the Suez Canal. The intention was, quote, to form a portion of a rampart of Europe against Asia, an outpost of civilization as opposed to barbarism. So this also kind of coincides with European uh, settler colonialism and imperialist, very like um, uh, very capitalist um, um, designs on the rest of the world, particularly Asia um, and the Middle East. Um, can you talk about how Zionism was also a project and is still a project of European imperialist force? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, a desire to see the colonization of uh, that area went back to Napoleon, if not before. I mean, Napoleon wanted uh, a French settlement in much the same uh, area. Uh, and Palmerston, Israeli, they all saw the, uh, the, the benefits to British imperialism of a Jewish settlement. And why a Jewish settlement? Because the Bible legitimized it. And, you know, I mean, the imperialists marched with a gun in one hand and the Bible in another. One legitimized the other. So it, it made sense, you know, the return to Palestine. It was a powerful moral force. And imperialism likes to see itself, even today, as having a a moral legitimacy. Yes, it's not. It, we went to India to stop wives, uh, widows being burnt on the funeral pyres. We didn't go to India to exploit it, of course, and to drain it of every last rupee. I mean, that, that, you know, I mean, that, that's just cynicism beyond belief. But, <laughs> so the same with the, a Jewish state in Palestine. It was fulfilling God's will. It was doing uh, as a moral uh, imperative, it was. So I mean, there was considerable dissent amongst the, the, the uh, British bourgeoisie about the Palestine experiment. I mean, the Daily Express and the Daily Mail ranted against the cost of this and the, where were the benefits and the House of Lords. There was strong opposition. It was and the large sections of the military were very unhappy with it. So uh, you, if you read some of the papers, Doreen Ingram's Palestine papers is useful on that. You'll see the debate within the ruling class about the merits of having a Zionist settlement, but the ardent imperialists like Churchill uh, and uh, I, I can't remember now, but there were other uh, imperialists. Uh, they came down. The political wing, if you like, of the ruling class came down strongly in favour of Zionism. Uh, and the Labour Party. 
the including what? the including the Labour Party. Oh God, it was. I mean, the Labour Party was worse in so many ways. I mean, I've got that quote. I don't know if you've seen it by Ramsay MacDonald. Uh, actually, that that's a useful one. I thought I read it out. I'll uh, I'll just search for it now. I mean, Ramsay MacDonald went to Palestine. It was in 1922, and he wrote an article which was published by Paul Zion, which is now, of course, the Jewish labor movement. Uh, and he says, the rich plutocratic Jew, quote, who is the true economic materialist, he is the person whose views upon life make one anti-Semitic. He has no country, no kindred, whether it's a sweater or a financier, he is an exploiter of everything he can squeeze. He is behind every evil that governments do, and his political authority, always exercised in the dark, is greater than that of parliamentary majorities. He detests Zionism because it revives the idealism of his race. Now, I think you'd probably agree that that would get you expelled from the Labour Party today. Yet, polls and there it is. Like, there it is, published by the forerunner of the Jewish Labour movement. That's right. That's absolutely right. And I think we should start to make use of that quote because I mean, it is. Yeah. A very, very useful. There's a number of other quotes by right, the right wing of the Labour Party, which are equally anti-Semitic. Uh, yeah. The Zionists were not bothered with that. You know, I mean, that's why. I mean, the best response to the anti-Semitism campaign would have been to say, "Well, Zionism has never fought anti-Semitism, so why are you concerned now?" But of course, people didn't have the wit about them to uh, realise what they were really about. But that is a problem that we face. But yes, I mean, uh, Zionism has never had any problem with genuine anti-Semitism. I mean, I could explain to you also, I mean, you mentioned uh, Lenny Brenner's book, uh, and that, that was 40 years ago, and there's been a lot of research, of course, since that. I mean, two books by Francis Nicosia, which have uncovered a lot of information from the German archives uh, and other articles. But I had, I mean, I wrote an article in 2014 saying where I disagreed with Lenny for the Journal of Holy Land Studies. Uh, the book was, it's fine, it's a blow-by-blow account of what the Zionists said and did, and I, I don't detract from it, and Lenny did a lot of very great work. Uh, but uh, I disagreed with his analysis. He didn't even mention Rudolf Verber, uh, who was one of the two Jewish escapees from Auschwitz, and without, because uh, he'd never heard of him, as he told me later, uh, but you can't understand the Kastner and what happened unless you understand that Kastner suppressed the Auschwitz Protocols, which were the first definitive proof of the existence of Auschwitz as an extermination as opposed to a labour camp. But uh, there were other things. I mean, he went along, in essence, with the line of the orthodox Netero Carter, Rabbi Weissmandel, uh, and... <laughs> I mean, it's fine that they support the Palestinians and they come on demonstrations, but politically, I would not never, ever rely on them because their political ideology is quite reactionary. I mean, they come on Palestinian demonstrations, but you won't see an orthodox woman with them because uh, women stay in the home and so on. So I think it's a great mistake. I mean, he covered Vice Mandel, but didn't mention that he was a member of the Yidenrat in Slovakia. He didn't mention things like the, the letter he sent advising Chief Rabbi Freudiger of Hungary to trust Dieter Bisleni, who was, if you like, the butcher of Slovakian jury. He 
he had uh, <laughs> hundreds of thousands on his hands. Uh, he, he, he put into effect a bribery scheme in Slovakia to stop the deportations, not realising the Catholic Church had done its work uh, for him because they were pretty outraged, the Pope, at the fact that the Catholic priest was heading the Slovakian government. So there were a number of things that I disagree with Lenny uh, politically over, uh, and I would agree with Verber. I mean, Weissmantel had a Euro Europa plan whereby you could bribe the Nazis $2 million to stop the deportation uh, outside Poland. I mean, you know, I mean, Verba described that as a harebrained scheme, and uh, I have to say I agree with him. The Zionists, you know, Jehud de Boer, uh, you know, laid into Verba because of this, saying, how could you attack someone so noble of character as Weissmantel? So, I mean, that is also the other thing, which Brenner didn't do. He didn't tackle the Zionist historiography. How the Zionists have rewritten the history of the Holocaust in their own favour. So, that, for example, I mean, uh, it's a cardinal axiom of the Zionist movement. The Holocaust is unique, unique to Jews. And indeed, it's anti-Semitic to claim it for anyone else. It, you know, so, yes, the gypsies suffered, but it wasn't a Holocaust. And there's a very good debate, which I quote from Sybil Milton versus Yehuda Ball, where Sybil Milton says, I mean, well, Nazi extermination was on the basis of your biology and uh, the gypsies qualified just as much as the Jews. But of course, the, the gypsies don't have a political lobby and don't have any political purchase. Same with the disabled. They were murdered because of who they were. Uh, you know, you can't change if you're disabled into able. So... Uh, they were also maybe up to 700,000. We don't know the numbers. Uh, we don't know the numbers of gypsies who were exterminated incidentally either. But then, of course, we don't really know the number of Jews. All these numbers are guesstimates at best. So, uh, But for the Zionists, there was only one group that really suffered from the Holocaust. Because it was a, it, the words of Lucy Davidovitz, who was one of the main Zionist historians, it was a war against the Jews. And that is, uh, for the Zionists, that's uh, pivotal, that... Everything Hitler did was to exterminate the Jews. That was the sole aim. And, you know, I mean, that's completely unmaterialist history of it because I think it's quite clear that Hitler's main enemy was Bolshevism, uh, communism. Uh, and the Jews were the biological parents of it, you know, the Judeo-Bolshevik Judeo conspiracy. So, uh, I mean, that's how the, whole of the, how the extermination must be seen. It's actually not true that... Hitler was determined to exterminate every German. Expulsion was their policy before 1939, back before 1941. So, I mean, they're wrong on every single issue. And Sybil Milton takes Yehuda apart. And I quote from that debate in the book, so you can read it for yourselves. And you write about both the suppression and the exploitation of pivotal moments uh, in in you know the history of of rebellion of uh, Jewish communities um, during the Holocaust, mm -hmm. especially um, the Warsaw Ghetto Fighters. How you know I remember reading the autobiography of Marek Edelman, of course, who was the mm -hmm. um, the co-founder of of the Jewish Bund um, and was uh, just a remarkable fighter and remained an anti. He was an anti-Zionist. Uh, you know when when Zionism was. Um, you know, coming to Europe um, uh, and remained an anti-Zionist and was very supportive of the Palestinian um, struggle yeah, yeah. for liberation. 
Um, but, you know, but that that part of his political history, I mean, when he died several years ago, I believe the New York Times didn't even mention his support for Palestine. Um, and, you know, the Zionists kept trying to claim him as this this, you know, this great uh, Jewish hero um, who, you know, was the, you know, kind of in the spirit of, of Israel was, you know, I'm um, not sure they did. I mean, you see, <laughs> they, they uh, might have just like silenced, silenced him completely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. in Israel, there was hardly any, I think yeah. Haaretz covered, but there was hardly anything. Uh, and, you know, in Warsaw, I mean, he was seen off by the state president. He had a state funeral, a 15 gun salute. And not even the lowliest clerk at the Israeli embassy attended the funeral. I mean, he was disappeared. So, yes, I'm sure the New York Times just eliminated the support for the Palestinians. But when he addressed a letter to the Palestinian resistance and said they were, he compared them to the Warsaw Ghetto fights, that caused outrage in Israel. Uh, he was really a persona non grata. He was a non-person. Uh, and so Israel forgot him very quickly. And he was the last commander of uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance. So, I mean, this shows you, but it, it, it was really worse than that because at the time, I mean, there were Zionists who fought, not because it was Zionists, but in spite of the fact that it was Zionists. And their own youth movements in Palestine tried, instructed them to return to Palestine uh, through what was the Ali Abet. Uh, and they refused, to their credit, uh, Zivia Lebet. Uh, Zivia Lebetkin, there was Hajka uh, Klinger, I quote, uh, and so on. They were instructed to come to Palestine. They, they were told it was a waste. So they've only subsequently adopted it. And Hajka Klinger, when she came to Palestine, I think it was in 1947, spoke at the Histadrut, uh, to the Histadrut executive, and she condemned uh, the Zionists. Uh, who she said made up the bulk of the Yiddenrat, the Jewish councils, which collaborated and said we have to put them on trial. Uh, and she uh, criticised very heavily, as did the other Zionist fighters, the response in Palestine. All their memoirs were altered, in some cases really forged, almost quotations. They excised large parts of it which were critical. So you have to go back to the original sources and now Khajka's diaries are printed, but I mean, the leader of Hashem Hatzer, uh, Mayor Yari, of leader of Mapam, as it became, uh, was bitterly critical uh, of her. I mean, because they didn't understand that the real battle was in Palestine, it wasn't in Europe. And that was their, their mistake, that they believed they should stay with their own people. So, I mean, yes, I mean, Zionists did fight in the Warsaw Ghetto, there's no doubt about that, but it, it had nothing to do with Zionism. There's so much in your book, Tony, that we won't have time to get into. And um, there, you know, you cover some of the same topics uh, that uh, Lenny Brenner's book does, which, you know, maybe I mean, I've written about as well um, in relation to Owen Jones recently, um, namely the Ha'avara agreement mm. um, and the, and the the case of Rezo Katzner, who was a Hungarian Zionist leader who collaborated with the Nazis, essentially. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, you go through all those and um, those cases, I mean, they're still controversial to some people like Owen Jones, <laughs> who, you know, defended Rezo Katzner. 
Um, but, um, you know, there's, there's, there was a lot. I mean, like I said earlier, I always learn stuff from you. And um, there was a lot in your book that um, was new to me. Um, yours is the only book that I know of which brings the entire story up to date, up to the modern day of, in terms of um, Israeli collaboration with the far right. Mm. Um, in globally, and you've got a global perspective on it. So could you explain a bit more about your findings on Israel's links to the far right and fascist regimes um, more recently in the post-war years and up to today, what the things that you found and that you've written about in your book? Yes, indeed. I mean, my last chapter, chapter 18, is on is on Argentina. And I think that is a special case because that was the first neo-Nazi regime, leaving aside Paraguay, which was a special case. With yeah, I found this chapter, I read it today and I found it really fascinating. This was mm. largely new to me. So yeah, explain that. Well, between 1976 and 1983, the, a military junta took over in Argentina. Their ideology was anti-Semitic. They, they clung to this Andinia plan which is that uh, Marx, Freud, and uh, who else was it? Uh, uh, Einstein formed the kind of holy or unholy trinity. And they were, this was the Jewish conspiracy. Uh, and so they pulled in, they arrested Jews, left-wing Jews mainly, but not entirely, uh, to find out. And they tortured them and uh, they died under torture, most of them. All. They it, so this was a, a local Argentinian... Uh, military junta, which was kind of fascist, essentially fascist in character. Yes. Uh, this, 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 cons this plan, this sort of global conspiracy they had, was their own kind of. Would you say it was their own kind of spin on yeah. the the kind of Nazi um, ideas of a Jewish world conspiracy? Yes, in essence, yes. Except it revolved around Einstein, Marx, and Freud. Uh, why? I, I'm not sure. I haven't researched into the origins of the Andinian plan. Uh, but they had this. And under the junta, up to 3,000 Jews, something like 12.5% of all those who disappeared were Jewish. And the Argentinian Jewish community is less than 1% uh, of uh, the Argentinian Jew uh, population. So you would have thought, given all the fuss and the campaigning about Soviet Jewry, if you remember that, uh, let our people go and so on and so forth, a massive campaign in the 60s and 70s, you would have thought that Israel would have been to the fore in denouncing the Argentinian junta. Not a word of it. I mean, absolute radio silence. Why? Well, they were the largest arms supplier to the Argentinian junta. When Jimmy Carter cut off uh, arms sales, uh, Israel stepped into the breach. Israel was training these officers. They were going to Israel to receive their training. Uh, in the Falklands War, uh, Israel supplied Argentina with emergency military equipment and so on. The Israeli embassy were refusing applications from Jews who were considered by the junta to be subversive. So, I mean, this idea that Israel will somehow be a refuge against anti-Semitism for Jews is poppycock because, you know, if you're a socialist Jew abroad and you fall foul of, say, the Ukrainian junta, uh, under Zelensky, then uh, you probably won't be given a very great welcome. But certainly in Buenos Aires, the Israeli embassy did not want to know. I mean, some Jews got visas anyway, but uh, their, their policy was very hostile. 
and that was written up in a book uh, by an Israeli uh, correspondent for Yidiyat Achronot. Uh, I think his name was Zohar uh, off the top of my head, but it's in it's in the book. And basically, they were they were the wrong sort of Jews, and so they were not welcomed. And the most famous of them was Yaakov Shimmerman, uh, who edited a, a left Zionist paper, uh, uh, that opinion, uh, and he was arrested. Uh, and tortured, uh, and uh, the Israeli when he was released, because he his case attracted enormous publicity. Uh, he was held under house arrest, and the Israeli ambassador Ram Negad visited him and asked him to sign a piece of paper saying his treatment had been good, and he absolutely refused. He condemned the local Jewish uh, community council, uh, Dyer and Amir. Uh, who he accused of being uh, collaborators and Yid a Yiddenrat because they were they were Zionists. Uh, because most of Argentinian jury then was not Zionist. I don't know what, what the situation is now. But Israel absolutely refused to speak out. And when Timmerman asked the director of the Israeli Foreign Ministry why, it was because the Russians were our enemy, whereas uh, the Argentinians are, are part of our friendship with America. So, I mean, there you have it. When it came to it, the interests of Israel always come first. Uh, so this idea that a Jewish state will protect Jews abroad is, is total nonsense. But again, the Argentinian episode has also disappeared uh, down the memory hole. So I'm trying to, if you like, if you like, this is a basic history of what happened. There was a lot more which I had to cut out, but I think the essentials are there. The Knesset refused to discuss the plight of Argentinian jury right throughout the period. It was simply vetoed on government orders until finally the Supreme Court uh, said, yes, it has to be discussed. But uh, the, the evidence is there. I mean, Shirley Mitterlani, uh, from RATS, the Civil Rights Party, repeatedly tried to discuss it. And she was threatened physically by a, a Zionist who said, this is not to be discussed. Israeli interests come first. So that is the lesson of Zionism and the Israeli state when it comes to it. It's not a guarantor of anything if you're Jewish either. And Israel was arming the hunter throughout all this yeah, period. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Kafir jets, it was flying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it right. was during it was during was this part of that arming was during a, some periods when um American arms were being were not being sent to the hunter. Yes. I mean yeah. basically Israel had the policy that when the United States was forced by Congress and the public pressure not to equip and arm some of the mm. South American junters, same in Guatemala, uh, Israel yeah. always stepped into the breach. This was a pattern, and it, it's, it's, this was a pattern throughout all those periods of dirty yes. wars in Latin America where, yeah. you know, it was the same with the, the Contras in Nicaragua, um, and, and as you mentioned in the book as well, the, the genocide in Guatemala, which, yeah. you know, Israel was also... Uh, complicit in by helping to arm the 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 generals at the time. Rios Mont. Yeah, who was later found guilty of genocide. Mm -hmm. um, Israel was this relates to what you said earlier. Israel was a useful tool and still is a useful tool of global U.S. imperialism and before that British imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, what another thing I found really fascinating in the Argentine chapter, which I. Um, I don't think I really knew about, or maybe dimly, was um, the issue of the Amir Community Center, the, the yeah. Jewish Community Center, which was 
bombed in 1994. And we hear this brought up occasionally still today that um, it, there was claims at the time and still now that Iran and Hezbollah was behind this. But um, that's actually been shown to not be the case. Yes, it's pretty clear now from the police informer who turned, if you like, Queen's evidence, that the plot to bomb the centre originated inside the police itself. And they basically got into cases joint to point out the weak spots and so on. And it's a fair conclusion that they were responsible. There's no evidence that Hezbollah or Iran did it. I mean, and the Americans have basically accepted that uh, there is no evidence. But, you know, yeah. I mean, for Israel, their interests are in blaming Hezbollah and Iran. They're not in... Yeah, I mean, it, it. this is Operation Gladio type stuff, really, isn't it? Because it... In a lot of uh, something else you get into the book is in a lot of these um, South American military dictatorships, um, there was a neo-Nazi, if not an outright Nazi ideology in place, because in a lot of cases there were Nazi war criminals who were sheltered in South America, um, sometimes even with the help of Israel. And so that this was this was something I mean, I knew that part of it, but I didn't know that. Something new I learned from your book was that the Israelis were doing this, essentially the same thing as the Americans and British when they were rescuing Nazi war criminals from Italy uh, and West Germany um, after World War II, at the end of World War II. Um, Israel actually did that in a few cases as well. And uh, could you tell us um, who were Walter Rauf and Otto Sozeni and what did they do for Israel? This is something you touch on in your book. Well, I don't know a great deal about what they did for Israel, but I, I know that there were agents of Israel. Otto Skortsony apparently was a hitman for Israel. Skortsony was famous because he first of all rescued Mussolini when Mussolini was overthrown uh, in the coup in, I think it was what, it was about September 1943. Uh, he was arrested and held wherever. And Skortsony, who was a parachutist and so on, uh, led the rescue attempt and put Mussolini back in charge of what was called the Salo Republic, which was really run by the Nazis, not by the Italians. Uh, and it was then that the deportation of Italian jewellery began. So, I mean, Scotsony played a key part in that. And then in Hungary, again, uh, the, the anti-Semitic regime that Nazis had basically installed under Horthy in March 1944, uh, was basically eased out of office by Horthy after the response of the West to the deportations. The deportations of Jews started in middle of May, May 15th, 1944, and they were stopped by Horthy on July the 7th, basically because they'd become an open secret in the West what was happening, the massive publicity given to the Auschwitz Protocols, which despite Hassan's efforts, were publicised. Uh, the Swiss press blew it all up in the open. Uh, and basically, uh, Horthy just called a halt to it and said, we can't persist in this any longer. I mean, Horthy knew what was happening, but uh, he got cold feet, as did quite a number of the Nazis' allies in Eastern Europe. Antonesco in Romania, likewise, uh, got cold feet when he realised that the Germans were going to lose the war. Uh, and so that situation changed. Uh, but uh, Scott, I mean, Horthy established regime, I think it was from about August to October, 
under General Latikos, uh, which was a fairly benevolent regime as they go, and the Jews were persecuted and deportations were no longer taking place. And then Horthy was very stupid in many ways. He, he told Hitler that uh, he was joining the Allies. So, of course, the Nazis then promptly overthrew him. And Skorzeny came in and uh, he captured Horthy's son, uh, also called Miklos, rolled him up in the carpet, believe it or not, and told Horthy that if he made one wrong move or disobeyed what uh, his orders were, his son would be shot. And so he played a very key part in re-establishing a neo-Nazi, uh, if you like, uh, regime in uh, Hungary from about October, I think it was the 23rd, onwards until uh, Budapest was liberated in January 1945. There were no deportations, because Auschwitz had already really shut up. It had stopped uh, exterminations in about October and November. They were actually blowing up the extermination equipment, because Himmler was also getting cold feet at that time as well. Uh, but, I mean, the Neolast, the Arrow Cross, who were the fascists who'd taken power, I mean, they ran right in Budapest and they killed up to 50,000 Jews. I mean, Budapest had a quarter of a million Jews in it. Uh, so, I mean, about 200,000 were saved because of the Auschwitz Protocols, but 50,000 died in these savage pogroms before the Soviets uh, liberated uh, Budapest uh, and the rest of Hungary. So, I mean, Skorzeny played a key part in that, but uh, nonetheless, he was... Uh, an agent of Israel, and likewise Walter Ralph. Walter Ralph had to his credit the invention of the gas truck, uh, whereby you uh, put people in the back of the gas van and you attach a hose to the exhaust, channel it inside, and they, people die quite painfully, really, of carbon monoxide poisoning. So that those gas trucks were used first against the disabled in Germany, which caused an outrage. I mean, you know, people... You, began wondering what's happened to my child. He's been taken off, declared subnormal, and then a death certificate arrives. And, you know, this, this happened time of 70,000 or something. So eventually it was pretty much an open secret. There were these killing centres in Germany and Hitler realised he couldn't persist with it any longer. But it was transferred uh, to what was called the wild euthanasia to the concentration camp. So it continued, but it didn't continue in Germany. And, that was the answer to those who said, well, uh, German people knew about the extermination camps. It's not true. I mean, the main reason why they were not situated in Germany was precisely because the German people shouldn't know uh, about them. So they were situated in Poland for, for those reasons. But Walter Ralph, I mean, uh, he, he not only invented the gas truck, which killed, uh, I don't know, a, a minimum of 100,000, probably many more, uh, on the, uh, the borders of the Soviet Union, in Chelmno, where which was the first extermination camp, uh, and then in Serbia and elsewhere. Uh, he went to Tunisia and he was trying to set up, during a Nazi occupation from about October 1943, uh, an extermination camp in Kairoun, but the Nazi occupation only lasted about six months and the Italians uh, also objected. So uh, eventually they gave up the idea uh, and they say the Nazi occupation of Tunisia was short-lived, uh, fortunately. Uh, but Ralph was a, a major, major war criminal. And for Israel to have him as its secret, uh, its, its agent, I mean, it was just outrageous. But that's what happened. 
and they paid for his uh, passage to Ecuador, where he started a new life. And I think he became a high officer in the Chilean secret police under Pinochet. So, uh, yes, I mean, Israel has no hesitation to doing cooperating with neo-Nazi regimes and uh, movements. Is it any wonder? I mean, we have a Jewish Nazi party, which is set to become the third largest in the Knesset now. So, uh, you know, I mean, Israeli mm -hmm. politics are, you know, I mean, uh, are going around. I mean, uh, if you establish an ethno-national state, then you, what you do, it accords with the logic of what the Nazis did as well. I mean, that's the fate of ethno-nationalist states, which is why neo-Nazis today love Israel, because really, what is there not to like about it? You know, as Richard Spencer says, I'm a white Zionist. Over your decades of research and this this book and your own political activism, um, where do you see Zionism headed now in this current state, in this context of Israel becoming more and more fascist, more of an apartheid, genocidal state? Um, and more ingrained with imperialist designs and 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 politics um, around the world. It's a difficult question because it depends on so many variables. I mean, what I don't think is possible is that the Palestinians by themselves will have the weight to overthrow Zionism in Palestine. They're unlike the South African black people. They don't have a, a major working class upon which the whites have depended. That isn't the case in Israel. I mean, South Africa was an exploitative colony primarily, an exploitative settler colony, whereas Israel really doesn't want Palestinians. It would quite happily expel them over the Jordan, given the chance if it was politically feasible. So there is a much greater strength in Israel. I mean, not only politically, but economically, uh, and socially as well. It's a very tight community. Uh, and that's why, I mean, any ideas of socialism have died. I mean, the term leftist is an abuse, is a term of abuse in Israel today. And you can see the Zionist left, which was never much of a left. I mean, it, it's now a fragment. It, it, it's fulfilled its role. It's irrelevant. So I don't see within Israel any change whatsoever. I think groups like the Board of Deputies will continue... Uh, to whitewash what happens. The Jewish Chronicle and the Jewish News and so on will ensure that nothing true gets out. So it's up to the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Britain to make, apart from anything else, young Jews aware, like they have in, in America, of the reality uh, of what is happening. Now, I, I think to a large extent amongst British people, there is a growing realisation that Israel is an apartheid state. But uh, where I think you, people go wrong is to believe that the British establishment will therefore be persuaded. Israel is supported because it's in the interests of British and American imperialism. So there won't be much change unless they are forced to change uh, by a mass movement from below. And so the idea of Palestine solidarity campaign, that you can really mainstream the anti-Zionist or the pro-Palestinian narrative simply doesn't accord with the reality because it's not in their interest to, which is why the most anti-Semitic papers, you know, the Mail, which campaigned vehemently with the Express to not admit Jewish refugees from Nazi Germany, you know, is the most pro-Zionist of them all. They can employ a neo-Nazi called 
Katie Hopkins, uh, you know, who speaks on platforms with Holocaust deniers at the same time as they can be avidly pro-Zionist. Being anti-Semitic and Zionist is perfectly compatible. And obviously many Jewish people don't understand that. But I, I think in terms of Zionism, the end of Zionism, until the Arab people have overthrown the regimes that uh, oppress them, because those regimes are protected by Israel. I mean, that's why Israel was put in place to guarantee the safety of uh, Western oil interest. Until we see, if you like, revolution in the Arab East, uh, then I don't think Zionism will be overthrown. I can't see any other force that can do it, certainly not within Israel. The Jewish population, the settler population, certainly isn't going to do it. Anyone who believes that is living in cloud cookie land. Uh, I mean, Martin Luther King said it, that those who benefit from privileges will not voluntarily give them up. It was a letter from Alabama jail. It's true now as it was then. So uh, there are basically no reformist solutions for Zionism. You know, I mean, it, you can reform capitalism and introduce palliatives, if you like, but you can't do with that with Zionism. It has to be overthrown, utterly destroyed. So, I mean, I say in my book that uh, even if there have been no Palestinians, even if uh, the Zionist movement had colonised an empty Pacific island, I would be opposed to Zionism because it's a reactionary formation in its own right, even, regardless of what it's done to uh, the indigenous Palestinians. And that's true now as then, but uh, Palestine will not be free until the Arab world is free, I'm afraid. I, I can't, unless America withdraws its support because the oil's run out or something like that. But even then, I somehow doubt it, uh, but I mean, that, that's my uh, scenario. But Zionism itself, uh, well, in America, I mean, it's, it is losing favor amongst Jewish people. I mean, uh, it's, it's the main supporters are of course, Christian fundamentalists because uh, they are Christian imperialists. I mean, that, that's what really motivates them. It's a, it's a national religion. Like, just like you had the German Reich Church where, you know, uh, the Germans were the chosen people, and so likewise America and the Manifest Destiny. It, it, it's all the same. I mean, Bob Dylan wrote that every nation that goes to war has God on its side, and that's as true of America as it is of uh, Israel. So I'm sorry, it's, that's not very optimistic, but I can't, I, I can only do my best to kind of help people understand what Zionism is. Fortunately, it's not within my power to do much more. Well, you've done uh, you've done a lot, <laughs> Tommy. <laughs> I am but an individual. Tell us where you can get the book, when it's coming out, and how people can stay in touch. Right. Okay. It's long overdue. I I, I was naively optimistic it would be out last April, uh, but not having been through this process before, having any written one book before, and that was all done for me. This was basically self-published in the sense that. I paid over lots of money to a publishing company to do it for me, but it's a ma it's a massive book. It's nearly two hundred thousand words, uh, and I had to send back proofs repeatedly, correct errors, all of that. Uh, and in the process, I rewrote some of it as well. So it will be out within the month. Cross my fingers. Everything apart from the hardback cover has been completed. So it is really just now a matter of time. The proof copies, as say, are out, uh, and the book itself will be out. So if people want a, a copy of it, write to me 
email me at tonygreensdean104 at gmail.com. Uh, I will put that on my blog and I will let people know, but it will be very useful. If you Unfortunately, PayPal took down my account recently. They provided no reason, but I think we can guess where the pressure came from. That would have been the easiest way, but that's not to be. So if you email me, I'll provide you with the bank details uh, and if you transfer the money. It's it's almost going to be a cost price. The paperback's going to be about 12 50 and the hardback about £18. And uh, that it'll be a bit more expensive from the publishers themselves, but uh, I won't be uh, making a vast fortune, I'm afraid. But uh, I just want to get it out, really, because I think the information in it needs to be known and understood. Because if we, you know, if people had understood Zionism's record vis-a-vis anti-Semitism, that they would have pulled them up about the Labour Party and said, well, your record today isn't very good, is it? Why are you so concerned about Jeremy Corbyn? But people don't ask simple questions like that, do they? Um, what was the response? I mean, presumably you approached publishers with this. Yes, I mean, <clears throat> I approached Zed Press, one of whose... Uh, consultants told me that the book was incendiary. Uh, <laughs> Pluto Press didn't even give a response. Verso hesitated. They actually did employ a couple of readers, uh, one of whom was quite useful in terms of structure of the book, so it did help me rethink it. But in the end, they got cold feet. I mean, it, it's a, a it's, it is a large book. Pluto told me it was too large for them anyway, but I don't know. But, you know, it's easier printing left-wing academics. You're not going to cause too much of a stir. I mean, this right. will undoubtedly cause a stir, and they obviously didn't want to be associated with it. So uh, I decided I had to do it myself. The Zionists were very helpful in that because I set up a crowdfunder, and I did it deliberately on the Saturday because I knew they would be at synagogue and they couldn't get anything out. So by the Monday or the Tuesday, it had raised about... 700 pounds but I, I wrote to each person saying send me your email this is going to be taken down there's no way they'll let it stay up but then I can write to you again and organize another means of payment and of course I blogged on it about the Zionist attacking free speech so I raised about half the cost simply from a crowd from that so in essence the Zionists did help me unwittingly because it took them three days to take the blog the crowd funds down and we know of course why they did that so that's how it is so but sometimes you they are so predictable they're predictably stupid as well <laughs> all right so tony thanks very much for your time really appreciate it and um your blog is if people just google tony greenstein's blog it's on blogspot um, and I'm sure there'll be more details there about your book in the coming uh, days and weeks. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Tony Greenstein. Thanks, Tony. That's okay. Thanks for watching this video. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Hit like, leave a comment. These engagements help us with the YouTube algorithm and it helps us to get around Silicon Valley censorship as much as possible. It does make a difference. You can also support our journalism by going to electronicintifada.net and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you.